The four mornings of the rest of this week, today and three more, will be taken up with a series of four expositions, I trust, which have for their general theme wherein we differ with traditional fundamentalism. Those who are familiar with the BBF doctrinal statement, and you can get your copy back there at the BBF table, know that we subscribe to every fundamental of the faith. I have often been asked, if this is so, in what way do you differ from other fundamentalists? It's going to be our purpose in these four messages to set forth and point out the four areas of disagreement with traditional fundamentalism, and we hope to be able to disagree without being disagreeable. Our first subject that we want to consider, and these other three, I might tell you now, are on the church, the subject of baptism, and finally the mission or commission of God's people today. It has been the teaching of some very highly thought of Bible teachers that God meant that the Apostle Paul should take the place of Judas who committed suicide. But we're going to show that this could not be so because of three basic reasons. Number one, the Apostle Paul could not have been one of the twelve apostles, first of all, because we read in the first chapter of the book of Acts, and you may turn there if you will, Acts chapter 1, where you recall the eleven apostles met to choose a successor to Judas. Acts 1, 21 and 22. Wherefore of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. The Apostle Paul could not have qualified as one of the twelve because he had not even seen the Lord as far as the record goes. The second reason is because the Apostle or Saul of Tarsus, as he was known, had not been saved as yet when this decision was being made. And he certainly could not have been ready for the day of Pentecost or the feast of Pentecost and for the offering of the kingdom in the third chapter of the book of Acts. And the third reason why the apostle Paul could not have been one of the twelve, was because 
he had a distinctive revelation given to him. Reserved for him, if you please. And we'll, we're going to show that in looking at a number of scriptures in this message this morning. Paul is mentioned some 120 times, I believe, in the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts. And those of you who studied Acts know this is so. While in the first 12 chapters, the 12 apostles are the prominent ones. If our cr chronology is correct, the apostle Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, was saved about 35 A.D., which would be a couple of years after the crucifixion of Christ. We'd like to note some details regarding his salvation, first of all. Turn with me to Galatians 1.15. In this verse, the Apostle Paul tells about his salvation. Verse 15 says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, or the Gentiles, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul, or Saul, was set apart for the ministry before his birth. That always is a mystery to the average religious person and church member. Many people fail to see how the Apostle Paul could have been chosen even before he was born. But he was, we're told in this verse. The word separated actually means to be set apart. He was set apart for the ministry to which God was going to call him even before his birth. And then he was called by God's grace. I remember a number of years ago when I first saw that calling in the Pauline epistles takes on a different connotation than we have in the Old Testament scriptures and even in the gospel account. Calling usually referred to vocation, and this is the way most people use the word calling. I have heard through the years, and so have you, I'm sure, that so-and-so was called to the mission field, or he was called to the pastorate, or he was called to some other specific ministry. If you study the word calling, the noun calling in the Pauline epistles, and the verb sometimes also, you'll find that it refers usually, most of the time, to salvation, not vocation. We're called to be saved. And I can well remember, as I indicated yesterday, when I was a boy 15 years of age, when the Lord called me to salvation. I was a rebellious teenager, and I used to have to attend church whether I wanted to or not. Usually I didn't want to. 
And my father said, well, as long as you put your feet under our table and eat here and sleep in your bed in this house, you're going to do what your father says. And those were hard words. I certainly didn't like to be under my dad's strong arm of discipline, but it was necessary because I didn't have any money to go anywhere, and I certainly couldn't have fended for myself. So I decided to stay home and, and bear up with it all. Well, I'm so glad now that my father insisted that I and Ted attend Sunday school and church. And it was through hearing the gospel, and I sat under the teaching of an old man. I say he was old. I used to think he was terribly old. In those days, I don't think so anymore. <laughs> but he stood in front of his class and more than once, and I've told this to our people in Denver, more than once I would see the big tears running out of the corner of his eyes as he talked about the Lord. And I knew that he wasn't kidding. I knew that he was dead in earnest. And it made a profound impression upon me as I listened to the Word of God and the way of salvation. And I learned that I needed to be saved at this early age. And so when I was 15, the Lord called me. And for several months before that decision was made in my heart, I was just miserable. I know that it was the Spirit of God now that was showing me that I was lost and that I needed Christ to be my Savior. And do you know that I well remember the night. I have, I have two birthdays, one in October, the other in January. And I remember my January birthday very well. I don't remember the first one. Someone has well said that if you uh, have two birthdays, you're only going to die once. If you only have one birthday, you're going to die twice. And I've often thought about that, how we thank the Lord for that day when we trusted the Savior. And God called me, and I, as I read about it, the Apostle Paul, that he was called by God's grace. I recognize that calling here has to do with salvation. In Acts 9.15, go back with me to this account by Luke of the spiritual conversion of Saul of Tarsus. In verse 15 of Acts 9, the Lord says to Ananias, But the Lord said unto him, to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, that is Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, we read about the Apostle Paul being a pattern. He gives this testimony in writing to the young pastor Timothy. 
1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, familiar words to all of us, I know. This is the faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I hope all of us know that the word chief here means first or foremost, first of a new order. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first, and the word first and the word chief are the same words in the original, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life eternal. And so Paul's faithful saying has to do with the fact that he is a pattern. Now I believe he's a pattern in two ways. A pattern, first of all, of the long-suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ in this age of grace. And he is also a pattern for the future salvation of Israel. I think it's a twofold pattern he's referring to here. You remember Saul of Tarsus was struck blind. The nation Israel is also blind at this time. And uh, one day, like Saul of Tarsus, the nation will have its spiritual eyesight restored when the Lord comes in power and great glory to set up the millennial kingdom. Now let's look at his commission. First his salvation, now his commission. Acts 22, where Paul relates this great event to a great crowd overlooking the temple grounds in Jerusalem. We've been studying the book of Acts in our midweek service in Denver, and it's blessed my heart again as we've gone over it word by word. And we just finished recently the 22nd chapter, and Paul's great message to that great Jewish crowd in Jerusalem. In verses 17 and 21, we read these words. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. I think that this refers to Paul's first um, return to Jerusalem after he'd met the Lord on the Damascus Road. Perhaps in Acts 9, 26. And he says that the Lord gave me a vision. Now the Lord, in those days, spoke to men in visions. Very often, he sent an angel down to tell them his message. Sometimes he used men. And the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures again and again were given God's message for specific people at a specific time. On into the gospel account and into the early chapters of the book of Acts, 
visions was still a part of God's communication with his people. And Saul of Tarsus, or Paul now, had a vision. And in verse 21 we read, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. And so the Lord reveals to Paul his commission. Now Paul was a Jew. I think a very little and short Jew. I've seen some Jewish people who are small in stature, though they're not all that way. But though they may be small in stature, they are mighty in their abilities. I have never yet seen a Jew going around begging. Usually Jews are in a business of their own, even if it's only collecting garbage and trash. But some have become millionaires doing that. And God has given the Jewish people great wisdom and abilities. And I often say to our folk that we ought to love the Jews. We ought to do everything we can to get the gospel to them at every opportunity. Now, I don't believe that the Jew has any priority today. There was a time when they did. But today, God looks at Jews and Gentiles just alike, as we'll show you. But we ought to love the Jews, first of all, because the Lord Jesus was a Jew in his human body. We ought to love the Jews because Saul of Tarsus was a Jew. And we owe much to the nation Israel, don't we? And I trust that we will, as believers and as Gentiles, will never subscribe to that philosophy of anti-Semitism. I, for one, am not an anti-Semitist. We believe with all our heart that the Jews are God's chosen people, and God will yet work out his plan and program for the Jewish nation. But Saul selected his greatest enemy, I should say God selected his greatest enemy, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul was saved, and now he is commissioned to go to the Gentiles. Turn with me to Galatians 1, 11 and 12. We looked at verse 15 a moment ago. Let's look at 11 and 12, familiar verses to all of us. But I certify you, brethren, or I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Certainly a very important passage of Scripture, and one which sets forth Paul's commission and his message. 1 Corinthians 9, 17. And this is nothing new to many of you who have 
been rejoicing in the gospel of grace for some time. But we have new people in our conference this week, many who perhaps haven't studied this at any great length, and you would like to understand it better. I hope you'll take note of these scriptures. 1 Corinthians 9, 17. Maybe we should read a verse of the context. Verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. But if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But even, I'm going to insert a word here to make a little better sense, but even if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Now I'm going to stop a moment and take for granted that we have people here who don't know what a dispensation is. I found that a lot of grace people and even some grace preachers confuse age with dispensation. Now as most of us know, an age is a period of time. It is true that a dispensation covers a period of time, as Mr. Stam has pointed out in one of his books. An age is a period of time. A dispensation covers a period of time. But an age and a dispensation are not identical. Now, it is my personal view that the age of grace began at the cross. Now, follow me, please. The age of grace began at the cross, at the finished work of Christ. However, the dispensation of grace began with the Apostle Paul. Now, I find that very often dispensation is used as though it were a period of time, and many people speak about the dispensation of grace, and they're referring to a time period. An age is a period of time. A dispensation is the act of dispensing something, as we have so often said. A dispensary. And many of you are old enough to remember, remember when they used to dispense polio shots around our cities. Supposing you were to go out to a dispensary to get a polio shot, but you came to the wrong dispensary and you got a whooping cough shot instead. That could be disastrous for a grown-up. May I tell you that a great many people today, are dis they've arrived at the wrong dispensary, and they're having dispensed to them the wrong remedy for their problem. Again, an age is a period of time. A dispensation is the dispensing of something. 
In Paul's case, it was the dispensing of the gospel of grace. And he says, a dispensation has been committed to me. And may I add, this same dispensation has been committed to every member of the body of Christ. All of us have had committed to us this dispensation. We haven't had an age committed to us, but we have had a dispensation committed to us. I hope you see that simple distinction. But I find that a lot of people aren't clear on this. Paul says the dispensation was committed to him. Look with me at Colossians 1, 25 and 26. Colossians 1, 25 and 26. Since I've been at Cedar Lake, the pages of my Bible stick together, something terrible. <laughs> and you'll have to forgive me if it takes me a little longer to get my place here. Col Colossians 1, 25 and 26. Whereof I am made minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Now, if you have a Schofield Bible, you'll notice that the margin says complete the word of God. Take note of that, if you will. It was given to the Apostle Paul to complete the word of God. I remember some years ago, one of our men told me that a couple of well-dressed young men walked into his shop and uh, they said, uh, we're from Salt Lake City. And of course, immediately he knew who they were. And they started talking to him and had some magazines and things they wanted to give him. And they said that Joseph Smith received the last revelation from God and that we ought to obey Joseph Smith's revelation. My friend said, well, uh, let me read a verse for you from the Scriptures. They didn't have a Bible along, but uh, he had one there. So he said, let me read you a verse from the book of Colossians. And he turned them to Colossians 1.25, where Paul said that it was given to him to fulfill or complete the Word of God. And our friend said, either Joseph Smith or the Apostle Paul lied. And the young men had really nothing more to say. What could you say? I think Colossians 1.25 is a very important passage. You ought to underline it in your Bible if you haven't already done so. And he goes on in verse 26 to explain what dispensing he was to do. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, 
but now is made manifest or made known to his saints. Paul's dispensation of the mystery completes the Word of God. Now, somebody may say, well, what about the Revelation? What about uh, the general epistles? Don't they come after Paul's epistles? Of course they do in the uh, canon of Scripture. However, all of us know, don't we, that the book of the Revelation has to do with that which the Old Testament prophets had told about. And it was simply the fulfilling of prophecy that Revelation discusses and talks about. I, for one, do not ever read the body of Christ into the book of Revelation. We've just finished teaching that also. And I was a little afraid to start the book because of the fact that I admit with many other Christians and preachers that the book of Revelation is rather difficult to understand. But I think a basic truth to understand about the Revelation is simply that uh, the Revelation is talking about the day of the Lord and the events that precede it. And the best book that I know of, if you're looking for a good book on the Revelation, is The Apocalypse by E.W. Bullinger. Now, many people are afraid to even mention that name, Bullinger. We don't subscribe to Bullinger's extreme views. But I'll tell you, you'll have your eyes open to a lot of things if you read The Apocalypse, one of the finest books I know about. And if you're going to understand anything about the book of Revelation, you better understand the 10th verse of the first chapter. Revelation 1.10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and it's not the first day of the week. In our services in Denver, I never say, well, we're so glad to have you here this Lord's day. I never say that. I said, we're so glad to have you here on the first day of the week. You see, the Lord's day is going to last a thousand years. And uh, I'm not going to be here when that takes place. You know where I'm going to be? In heaven. lady asked me yesterday if I thought that we were going to be down here uh, on earth and be one, as it says in Ephesians 1. Well, I said, there will be a oneness, I'm sure, but there's still going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So they're going to, so there's going to have to be some kind of distinction. Well, I'm getting off the track, so we'll get right back on it. Yesterday, the four mornings of still going to be a new heaven and a new earth, so there's going to have to be some kind of distinction. Well, I'm getting off the track, so we'll get right back on it. Paul's dispensation didn't concern prophetic events. Oh, he had some prophecies to talk about also, especially in 2 Timothy 3, but Paul's 
revelation, Paul's dispensation, if you please, the dispensing of the grace of God had nothing to do with the prophetic program and message. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 1.12. 1 Verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, the word enabled there is strengthened, strengthened me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Paul was selected before he was born for this special ministry God called him to. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 11. Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Isn't that a great verse? And verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Now the word preacher there is herald, one who heralds a message. Whereunto I was, the Revised says, I was appointed a preacher or a herald and an apostle and teacher of the Gentiles. He was put into the ministry by the glorified Lord from heaven, and he was given this appointment by the Lord himself. Now turn back with me to Acts 13. And I uh, suppose that you can understand that this pastor believes that here the Apostle Paul was officially sent out by the Holy Spirit, or I should say Saul of Tarsus was sent, on, sent out by the Holy Spirit. And uh, it is my view that uh, the body of Christ must have, begin, must have begun around this time. Anyway, verse 2 of Acts 13. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, these leaders in Antioch, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And verse 4. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus, separated and sent forth to the Gentiles by the Holy Ghost. Now let's look at, last of all, his declaration, his message. Just a few more pages over in Acts chapter 20, please. Another very familiar verse, verse 24. You recall that 
The Apostle Paul was having his last meeting with the Ephesian elders. And one of the most touching passages of Scripture in the entire Word of God. It was a very emotional time. And one of our brethren said, uh, it's not wrong to be emotional if it's uh, brought on by the Holy Spirit. I don't care for this kind of emotion that you can turn off like a faucet and turn on the same way. No. But emotions in themselves are not wrong. And as you read this account of Paul's last visit with the Ephesian elders, it'll move your heart, I'm sure, as a believer. I can picture the scene down there on the beach as they knelt in prayer with their arms around one another and everybody was weeping because of the fact that they thought this would be the last time they'd ever see his face. In verse 24, the apostle says, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And many years ago I wrote in the margin of my Bible opposite this verse, O oh God, may this be my testimony. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I am deeply concerned that so many of those who profess to know the gospel of grace and who stand behind the pulpit week after week have so little concern to promote and proclaim this glorious message. And I'm saddened when I think of some friends of mine that have slipped by the wayside and the Lord's unable to use them anymore. Oh, I just pray that this may be the testimony of every one of us here who bear the name of Christ and who understand something of the Pauline revelation given to us as members of the body of Christ. The gospel of the grace of God. I mentioned to the folks on Sunday, and I'll just quickly refer to it again in this connection, a couple of weeks ago, two ladies came walking down the street. I was out in front of the house digging around one of our shrubs. I get to do that once in a while. And uh, I saw who they were because of the literature they had in their hand. And uh, they came up to the house and said hello, and I said hello to them. And usually I don't stop and talk to people like that, but I did this time. And she said to me, I ought to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And she quoted me a verse from, not quoted me, but read me a verse from Matthew 24. I said, you know, if we were in the kingdom, I think it would be very appropriate for me to preach the gospel of the kingdom. But we're not in the kingdom today. And I said also that the uh, passage you're referring to, Matthew 24, has nothing to do with this age. It's talking about the tribulation and the events that will 
culminate in the coming of Christ down to the earth. Sure, I said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached. 144,000 Jewish evangelists will be proclaiming that message, as Revelation says. But I said, you're not a Jew. And she wasn't. And she you know, I, I happen to know that these dear people claim that they are the 144,000. No. Only 144,000 Jews. And most of us know that any multiple of 12 has to do with the nation Israel in number in Scripture. 144,000 is talking about 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Can you imagine how things are going to be on the earth when they're traveling all over? Just imagine. Talk about the gospel of the kingdom being preached. Everybody will hear it then. But I said, I'm not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm preaching the gospel of grace. And I called her attention to Matthew 20, 24. I said, the apostle Paul and all of us in this age are to proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. And I said, the gospel of the grace of God is not based upon the kingdom promises which the prophets and Christ himself gave, but it's based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of the grace of God committed to the apostle Paul and received of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 5. This great chapter which of course talks about the message and the ministry of reconciliation. Those of you who know our doctrinal statement and who have subscribed to it know that this is a part of our doctrinal statement. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 and 19, just those two verses here. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of the reconciliation. There's a definite article here. The reconciliation. A specific reconciliation. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word, and again there's a definite article, the word of the reconciliation. I think there are many of you here, no doubt, who understand the importance of the definite article in both the Hebrew and Greek. And like Mr. Stam, I don't profess to be a scholar in either one of these languages, but I do try to do a little studying. And uh, I've learned that the definite article is a very important part of God's Word because it makes something specific. Now, sometimes the translators have put the definite article in the English translation where it doesn't belong. And some places they've left it out where it should be. But if you recall that and remember that, it'll help you a lot in your study of the Scriptures. And then I'd like to have you look with me at Ephesians 3, 1 to 11, that well-known passage which 
is the basis for our doctrinal position. Ephesians 3, 1 to 11. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, since, no uncertainty here, the if should be since, since ye heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words. And many people think that that refers to Romans 16. I really don't know. But possibly Romans 16, 25 and 26, which I wrote afore in few words. Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages, the margin says generations, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The, the Gentiles are, not should be, but are, joint heirs and members of the joint body, and I'm interpolating a little here, and joint partakers of the promise, a definite article before promise, the promise in Christ by the gospel, whereby was made minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me who am blessed in the least of all saints. How can you get any lower than that? Less than the least of all saints. I've had people tell me they thought that the Apostle Paul was rather, rather uh, egotistical. They thought that he was bragging upon himself. Oh, no. He says, I am le less than the least of all saints. And to me is given this grace that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable or the untrackable riches of Jesus Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship or the dispensation or the stewardship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, not in the Bible, but in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. This message given to the Apostle Paul was not revealed in the Old Testament Scriptures. My, how many preachers have the idea that the mystery was there in uh, germ form, as some say. Some think that Christ in his earthly ministry spoke about the mystery. Not even once was it referred to, not even in John 17 that some have pointed to. No, the Apostle Paul received a message and a commission that was unique in that never before the glorified Lord gave it to him had it ever been given to anyone else. Hidden in God, this message which points up the fact that the Gentiles should be joint heirs, members of the joint body, and joint partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. And you know, verse 10 in this context says, 
to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known through the church. This is not something that the church should know, but that principalities and powers, angelic beings, should sit back and take note of what? The manifold wisdom of God, because it's being demonstrated by members of the body of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? We're on display before principalities and powers right now. And all of this glorious truth is according to God's eternal purpose, verse 11 says in this same third chapter of Ephesians. Romans 16, 25 to 27, and I'll let you out in just a moment now. Romans 16, 25 to 27, the verses that some think Paul was referring to here in Ephesians. Romans 16, now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by prophetic writings. And I believe that the prophetic writings here has to do with Paul's own prophetic writings. By prophetic writings made known to all nations, that's the Gentiles, for the obedience of faith. And this is all according to the commandment of the everlasting God. This glorious message ends the great book of Romans. And it's the closing benediction. I, I've been teaching Romans on Sunday mornings in our church in Denver, and I noted that there are three closing benedictions. He had three benedictions at the end of the book. Well, this, this great book deserves three benedictions. And here is the last one, and the greatest one of all. Second Timothy 1, 12 and 14. Second Timothy 1. The Apostle Paul is writing his last words, his last recorded words that we know about. 2 Timothy 1, verse 11, Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he, that he is able to keep that which he hath committed unto me against that day. Now I know the King James reads otherwise. And I know that we sing in the song, I know whom I believe. We sang it the other night. But he's not talking here about his soul salvation. That's the way I always looked at that verse. I remember when I was a student at Moody, we used to lift the rafters with that. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. You can tell by verse 14 that he's talking about that which he has committed unto me. 
and some translations have it this way. Verse 14, that good thing which was committed unto thee, Paul writes to Timothy, keep or guard by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And in across the page in your Schofield Bible, verse 20 of the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. And you remember in 2 Timothy 2.2, he says to Timothy, commit this to faithful men who shall be able or shall be capable, fit to teach others also. How important that those of us who understand something of the gospel of grace and the distinctive Pauline revelation be able to teach others also. This is how the gospel of grace is going to be made known. Preachers cannot be everywhere. Oh, we thank God for the writing ministry that so many of our brethren have. And their ministries expanded hundredfold by the literature that goes out and is read by countless numbers of people. Those who are on the radio as Mr. Stam, for instance. My, the ministry at the Berean Bible Society by itself would be small if it were not for all of these other ministries that go out to the ends of the earth. We thank God for those men who are capable of teaching others also this glorious message of the gospel of grace. And so Paul's commission and Paul's message is our commission, and it's our message. May the Lord help us all, whether we stand behind the pulpit or not. Some of us preach to an audience of one many times, don't we? And you don't have to be behind the pulpit necessarily to herald forth this good news. You can do it at every opportunity that, that the Lord gives you.